0: Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change, sponsored by lionrock.life. They were going to flight for life her to uh, Denver Children's Hospital. And he said we couldn't go with her because social services and the police were on their way. And it was just procedure that they needed to interview us. So for several hours, they interviewed us. And I don't remember my ex-husband saying this, but other people do. When he got out of his interviews, I guess he kept saying over and over again, I'm going to go to prison. They think I did this.
1: Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Game, and I am your host. And today we have Desiree Moore. Desiree grew up with addicted parents. She wanted desperately to live a different life, and when she met someone at 18 who seemed like he came from a white picket fence family, she could not believe her luck. The two got married and began having kids right away. Her husband moved from job to job trying to advance his career, but eventually he ran out of luck and was forced to return to the first job he'd left. Things changed drastically with him. His attitude and outlook turned dark. He began using pornography obsessively, and that's when the violence began. Desiree did everything she could to stand up for herself and her kids. But finally, the violence turned to her children. In 2008, her then-husband murdered her daughter. Desiree could not function. The guilt and sadness were crushing. She felt as if she could never be whole again her other daughter was put into foster care. She worked three jobs to try to survive, but was homeless. The years passed without any hope on the horizon. Then on the encouragement of a friend, she moved to a new town and her life changed completely. Things she never thought possible came true. While her daughter's death would never leave her, for the first time in a long time, life felt like it might be okay. Today, Desiree has a master's degree and has been able to escape the generational poverty that seemed insurmountable. Her grief is cyclical, but she uses her story to help others have hope even in their darkest moments. This story is intense, and there were a bunch of points that really stood out to me. One was that domestic violence can look different for different people. You'll hear about the violence that Desiree experienced, and what I found surprising was how quickly that escalated. Lastly... I heard about how addiction can affect children even if they do not grow up to struggle with substance use disorders. The home that Desiree grew up in with addicted parents modeled relationships that went on to affect the rest of Desiree's life. It's important to remember that our kids are watching and that we are shaping their ability to be in relationships with others. And that has downstream effects. I don't want to give much more away. It's an incredible story. She tells it very, very well, and it does have a happy ending. So without further ado, I give you Desiree Moore. Let's do this. so much for being here. Thank you, Ashley, for having me. I feel honored. This is very exciting. Yes, I found you on TikTok and was really, really moved by your story. So tell me a little bit about what life was like in your house growing up.
0: So I'm the oldest of three siblings, my sister and my brother. We were all born within three years and three months of each other uh, to my mother and father, of course. We moved a lot, so during my um, childhood, we lived in California, North Carolina, and Colorado, and then we moved a lot within those states. I think I counted one time that we had moved over 40 times in my thir- or I had in my 32 years of living. We moved a lot for a lot of different reasons. Most of my memories come from where I lived when I lived in Southern California. And my mom has a really big family. So we had moved from North Carolina, where my dad's family lived, to California. On that street, most of our family lived there with us. So my mom has a lot of sisters and brothers. Therefore, I have a lot of aunts and uncles, and they all have a lot of kids. So I have, I'm the oldest of probably more than 30 cousins at this point on that street. My grandpa, my grandma lived, three of my aunts, a lot of different cousins, all of my mom's side of the family. They were for the most part, most of them were addicts. So my mom's sisters were addicts. I don't know if my grandparents ever were addicts. I've never learned if that was the case, but it really was this microchasm of addiction, abuse, and severe generational poverty. And we all kind of lived in it together. We saw a lot when we were kids, death, violence, arrests, assaults, We were neglected by our parents. And when I say parents, I mean my mom and my stepdad. I met my stepdad when I was eight or nine years old. But me and my siblings quickly learned how to fend for ourselves. Things like food insecurity was a big issue for us. One of the things we would often do is we would heat up bowls of water and then use seasoning salt or any seasonings we could find in our cupboards and season the water and drink that and call it soup. That was very common uh, when I was a kid. We grew up on survival. And we learned how to make ourselves big or small, depending on a situation, to protect ourselves. When I was little, I, I remember looking around at the rest of the world, seeing the teachers at school or the other kids. I was a big fan of the Brady Bunch. I just thought that that was like the epitome of what a perfect life looked like. And I wanted one so bad, like, because that was a his, hers and, you know, ours. You know what I mean? They were a, a mixed household. And so I had a stepdad. And so I thought, oh, you know, your mom and dad don't even have to be married. and You could have this perfect life. Yeah. So I would look around at everybody else and I would see these kids who were clean and well dressed and they had shoes that were intact i would see other people treat each other with love and and i knew these kids went home every night and had dinner with their families and that was the kind of life that they had but i also had a lot of a lot of compassion and love for my mom i was her biggest fan and she spent a lot of her time with us when she was with us, coaching us, teaching us what to say when people ask questions, when social services would come around. And I actually mistook those, those periods of coaching for periods of connection and, and care because she wanted me to stay with her because she loved me. And it wasn't probably until I was about 11 that I changed my mind, that I saw the world differently, that something clicked and I realized that this isn't really how life should be. It shouldn't be like this. You shouldn't be raised on survival. You shouldn't be hungry for love all of the time. I made the decision, I remember, that I was going to live a very different life when I grew up and and I wanted that more than anything. And I was going to take my sister and brother with me because I was their caregiver, even though we were so close in age. We did live off of uh, government assistance. So um, I don't know all of what my mom got. I know she got food stamps because I had them sometimes. Sometimes she would give them to me. So I, when she was gone, I could go to the store and buy us food. But the thing about food stamps, and a lot of people don't realize it, it only lasts so long. It's it's rare that, especially if you're buying things that are easy to make, right? If you have kids that are at home and they don't have parents cooking them meals, you know, and you're buying, even though it's cheap food, but things like fish sticks and tater tots all the time, that that money doesn't last a, a whole month. right? I, I can't say for sure if she was, you know, selling her food stamps sometimes or anything like that because I, I didn't witness that. But I know it never lasted us very long.
1: So what were what were some of the feelings that you had when you started to realize, oh, the social workers are trying to help. Other kids aren't going through this. This isn't normal. Did you know that your parents were addicts? What, what were the thoughts around that? So... I never, as a child, thought social services was trying to help. I always
0: was very distrustful of them. That was pretty uh, drilled into my head to be distrustful of the system. Foster care was a place in which you were abused much worse than you were abused at your home. And I believe that. Actually, as a child, the oldest and just good at playing the game, I, I was rarely physically abused, but we were abused in other ways. And my sister and brother, on the other hand, they were a little more wild, and and so they were physically abused more. We we learned that uh, foster care was a place in which bad things happen to kids, and our home was safer than that place. As far as my mom's addiction, you know, when I was a kid, we took a trip to the Betty Ford Center. They had this program, this kids program. It's a great program. Yes, and I I will forever remember that. the The thing I remember the most, and this is kind of silly, is they had this cafeteria where they had the most amazing buffet I'd ever been to in my entire life. And I just remember all of the food and being so shocked by all of it and so excited and pigging out the whole time we were part of that, <laughs> that program. It was, I, it seriously is like a Disneyland experience for me when I was a kid going to the Betty Ford Rehab Center. I remember when I was there, we did this exercise with rocks in a backpack. And during this exercise, they had all the kids pick up the backpack full of rocks and carry it from one side of the room to the other. And of course, some of us struggled more than others because some of us were younger. And then we experienced how hard it was to walk with that backpack. And then after we all took a turn, the facilitator opened up the backpack and inside were rocks. And these rocks were painted and on each of the rocks was a word like grief. Or anger. They explained to us that our parents were carrying around this bag of rocks with them everywhere they went. Really, their bags just got heavier and heavier and it was crippling. And so sometimes they used less than healthy coping mechanisms to help them walk through life with those rocks. And I remember in that moment, I had so much compassion for my mother. I wanted nothing more than to help my mom relieve herself of those rocks. At the end of the program, one of the things we got to do was we got to write a letter to our parents and our parent wrote a letter to us and we got to go into a room together and we got to read those letters to each other. And I expressed my want to help my mother get rid of her rocks, to relieve her of all of the things she was carrying around with her more than I wanted anything in the world. And I wasn't mad at her for her addiction. I just wanted to see her experience recovery. Her letter to me was a big promise that she would, she would choose us every single time and she would become sober and things would change. Unfortunately, she was unable to relieve herself of her rocks. But that's really when I began to understand my mother's addiction was at that age. I understand now as an adult, my mother has been clean now for, I think, seven or eight years, which I'm really happy for her. But my mother has a lot of internal demons that she has struggled to fight. But as a mother myself with many demons and a 16-year-old daughter, I still struggle to understand I had a lot more understanding and compassion for my mother as a 10-year-old girl than I do today as a 32-year-old woman.
1: I think that's really common. I have a girlfriend who has a similar story to you, and she struggled to have the relationship. But then when she had kids, she called me and she said, I just think about how my mom could have done what she did as a mother, I just can't imagine. And that, that the experience of motherhood made her put herself in her mother's shoes, which made it the compassion less.
0: Yeah, they say it's usually the opposite way, right? You become a mother and you understand your mother so much better. And I feel like I became a mother and I understand my mother so much less.
1: I I wonder too, as you're describing the experience of learning about her rocks, I wonder too, if you felt a responsibility there because because that's the thing I heard, you know, I think what's amazing about the Betty Ford Kids program is that they have it, number one, that they try to teach kids that what's going on, what their parents are doing isn't about them. That's true. It isn't about them. But in, in your situation, what I heard was a kid who thought, I will help you carry your rocks. I will help you get them out of the backpack. The truth is that those are her rocks and her backpack and her responsibility. I think one of the most powerful things that how I've, how I've sort of framed it is I know how I feel about my kids. And I know that as a recovering person that I am no better or different than the mothers who are abandoning their kids and how powerful addiction is that it could take that bond that is the strongest thing you would you'll ever have and it could destroy it it could, it's stronger than that bond and so that's the perspective I've tried to have but again I didn't have I didn't have the parent experience so I don't have that piece of it you know growing up the way I did it would be easy
0: to think of addicts as less than people And I think some people do, especially if they've been the victim of an addict. I don't think of it that way. I I think I've had my own addictions that might not be drug or alcohol related, my own ways of self-sabotaging, but I've had to grow and learn. And so that caused harm, just different harm. It's not simple. No, It's, it's, it's no. It's, it's not simple. It's not like, just get clean. <laughs> I wish. I wish it were that simple. So during all of the abuse and neglect, my dad was sort of around. Uh, he would pick us up occasionally for short weekends. Sometimes he would call. And there was absolutely no way he didn't see what was going on. But he chose to ignore it over and over again. He chose to ignore it. And it wasn't until I was 13 years old, my dad met a woman where he was living in Colorado and she wanted to meet us and they were going to get married to las vegas on the way to meet us so he drove from colorado to california And he married her on the way. They picked us up. We went back to his house in Colorado. We were supposed to stay there for one month. And then uh, he got a call from social services. My mom and my stepdad had gotten in some trouble and he could not take us back to California or we would go into foster care. And it kind of strong armed him into taking responsibility for his kids. My dad had to care for me, my sister and brother for one year, but it didn't go well. His wife did not like us. Us three kids were, I mean, kind of, feral to a degree. We did not have a sense of social norms and rules that most people live by. I still struggle with them today, to be honest. And so there was a lot of grief and stress in, in the house. So my dad made a deal with my mom one year after we had arrived in Colorado, just for that visit that never ended, um, <laughs> made a deal with my mom to come to Colorado And their agreement was, is that she would be sober and my stepdad would not come with her because my stepdad had done some very awful things to us that my dad learned about that was just the agreement. So my mom moved to Colorado. My dad set her up in this single wide trailer on a dirt lot, several miles out of town. And we moved in with her when I was 14. So my mom moved to Colorado and two months after she moved to Colorado, my stepdad arrived on a Greyhound bus. He was an awful human and he caused a lot of pain and he still does. Did your mom know about that stuff? Oh, yes. There was a time where my stepdad had done something really awful to me and my siblings. And we told somebody at school it was that bad, we, which we normally did not do that. But it was, it was bad enough that we told people at school. So social services came and said he had to be removed from our home and he was temporarily. But then my mom sat on the bed with me and my siblings and cried and begged for us to tell the authorities that we were lying because her heart was broken and she didn't want to be alone. And if we loved her, we would do that for her. So we did. My mom is well aware of what her current husband did to her children.
1: How does that rank in the spectrum of things that she struggled with in terms of addiction, in terms of neglect and food insecurity? Does that particular offense, is that more significant than than the other things?
0: I think so. I mean, my sister has no contact with my mom because of it. I think if my mom had protected us, my sister would still have a relationship with my mother. I have a relationship with my mom and I'm trying to learn forgiveness every day. And I'm trying really hard, but it's, it's difficult. Sometimes I think it'd be easier to go no contact. And sometimes I wonder if I stay in contact with her because I feel guilty, because it's my responsibility to make sure everybody's okay. And that's always been my nature. Extreme altruism is actually something I'm trying to fix about myself. It seemed like nobody chose us ever. We were never the number one choice. It was always someone else or something else that came first that their needs trumped our well-being and safety. We talked about hunger and how I grew up hungry and hungry for love was definitely there. I had my first boyfriend when I was 14. Earlier I was talking about how my mom had an addiction that was self-destructive. I also had an addiction that was self-destructive and and really my addiction was to the validation and affection of others. In high school, I was a straight A student. I I joined all the clubs. I worked five to six days a week. I was the responsible, you know, uh, picturesque teenager. I think that part of the reason. I was so ambitious and and driven as a teenager was partially because I wanted to get out of the life I lived in, but mostly I think it was because I needed the validation that came from that. And I was constantly seeking it. I still am to a degree and I'm working on that through therapy, but it takes a long time. And also the validation that came from teenage love. You remember it, what it was like to be in love as a teenager.
1: It's intense. It's really intense. And if you are a kid or you know, I I don't know what it's like to be a boy, but if you if you're a girl who has had trauma early on, has had unwanted sexual experiences early on, having your own relationship as a teenager and trying to navigate that and all the feelings and all the things is very complicated and and difficult and right and i
0: am anxiously attached which i know and so a lot of my early relationships i mean i was i was just as toxic as they were you know i was playing these love games like just trying to make sure that they actually loved me and they weren't going to leave me right and i i played these games and i got pregnant when i was 16 and he um he left right after i told them i was pregnant He was not interested in being a father and it still is not today. I actually I don't know. I haven't talked to him since she was five. And then it was just me and my daughter against the world. I I decided to have her. She's 16 years old today. She's so talented and vibrant and wonderful. And so it was her and I against the world. I moved out of my mother's house when I was 17. I didn't have a car or a driver's license because my mom had no identification. When my dad got that call from social services. That said, my mom and my stepdad had gotten in trouble and we couldn't go back to California. My mom had lost the home we were living in and was homeless with my stepdad, had put all of our stuff into a storage unit, but couldn't pay the fee. So all of that was sold. So everything I had owned and my mother had owned before the age of 13 was gone. So when she moved to Colorado, she had nothing, including identification. Because of that, it just makes living hard. So back to when I was 17 and I was at uh, the... This single teenage mom, you know, I moved out of my mother's house and I was working full time so I could support us financially. I made that decision because I didn't feel like it was safe to live with my mother, given the environment. And so I dropped out of school so that I could work more. I moved in with a really nice girl. Actually, she was like this very nice Mormon girl who was like going to college and she was single. And it was perfect because she just, she had a lifestyle, which I revered because there was no, like, <laughs> there was, there was no partying. There was, she was just a, like a good, she was a good person. And while I was working full time and while I was a single mom was when I met my ex-husband. Where did you meet him? I met him at work. We had a mutual friend who worked with me, who introduced us. And he would come to my work. I worked at Sonic Drive-In, by the way, like (laughs) fast food. And uh, he would come to my work and bring me flowers and, you know, just... Lots of courting. I actually did not like him at all. (laughs) I did not want to date him. And all of my friends told me I was shallow (laughs) because (laughs) I did not think he was attractive. They said, Gosh, Desiree, he's such a nice guy. Why won't you give the nice guy a chance? Right, right. You should give the nice guy a chance.
1: So he's courting you, or maybe. something we also call love bombing. um, And that validation is being met. How, and you're not interested, but it sounds like it would please everybody if you were. Yes,
0: it would please everybody if I was. You know, you see this really nice guy who is being loving and supporting. He was doing favors for me, helping me out with things. You know, if I if I needed something, he'd give me a ride. And all my friends said, oh, this poor boy, Desiree, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right, right. Uh, just give him a chance. You know, he is head over heels for you. And so I did. And I think that I actually fell in love with where he came from more than him once I got to know him. And what I mean by that is on the outside, his family looked perfect to me. His mom was a stay-at-home mom his whole life. He grew up on love, whereas I grew up on survival. And I wanted somebody who grew up on love. His family was, I mean, they were just middle class. His dad was a coal miner. He had a little brother. He just, but his parents' house was so beautiful and clean. And I know that sounds so silly. His life was so normal. It seemed magical. And I wanted that kind of life for me and my daughter. And so looking at him and our relationship and what kind of life we could have together, it seemed like a really good option. So we dated for only about, I think, eight months before we got married. I was 17 when we started dating. He was 19 or 20. So he was young too. I mean, he was very young. He had graduated high school, I believe. Oh my gosh. I struggle with dissociative amnesia. So there are parts of my life that I have no memory of, and sometimes the only reason I can remember them is because it was documented or because I somebody I trust is willing to share the actual details of my life with me. But it's not actually like what I don't remember. It doesn't make any sense.
1: I think that is a really normal response that you have when you have incredible trauma in your life. And it's, a, it's adaptive, right? The brain basically blocks out things so that you don't have to deal with them so that you can survive. You talked about survival so you can survive. So you guys got married. When did you start to see signs that he wasn't the guy that you thought he could be at least.
0: So my ex-husband and I got married when I was 18 years old. I was already six months pregnant with our daughter. And we got married in his family's church, uh, which we attended most Sundays with his family. They're very religious. So we integrated into that. I was building this community of sorts. And you had asked me when I started seeing signs that he wasn't who he appeared to be. And the reason I brought up the church is because it soon became apparent that people in my life like my friends or my family were not as welcome as as the people in his life the church and his parents and his friends he started to try very slowly to isolate me from them but i didn't i didn't see it of course at first i felt like i was just building this big beautiful life and that he was right that his people were way better than my people anyway he did have he did lie a lot before we got married and he lied about really silly things. So we had lived with my my best friend, who is still my best friend today, actually, for a little bit. We uh, were roommates with her while I was pregnant. And he would eat her food and turn up the thermostat. And then she would ask him if he did it. And he would always lie every single time. And then he would like go places and I would ask him where he was and he would lie and I'd find out that it was a lie. Or he would take something. I remember he stole something from a friend And they asked him about it and he lied. And it was so, it was so silly. Like some of these things were not worth lying about. Right, right, right. Like a child lying about something you already know. Yeah. Uh, So that was a weird sign. And we did have these arguments that were very like, passionate, right? More than any other relationship I'd been in. And it was always this weird, super passionate argument that would come to a head. And then he would be like this emotional mess and like crying and sobbing. And it was, it was very odd. Then we got married and things changed drastically very fast. His lives got more extravagant. He wouldn't work. He couldn't keep a job anymore, even though that was not who he was before we got married. He watched copious amounts of pornography while he was taking care of our children at home and I was at work. So, like, it was visible to them. Yes. I mean, they were, Natalie, my oldest, she was, she turned two in November of 2008. So she was, you know, close to two at this time. But yes, and I I knew about it because our cable bills would come in and, you know, I couldn't pay them (laughs) because they were so much money. He started to punch holes in walls and and doors um, when he got angry and throw things at me, break things, call me awful names. He would grab me by my arms or or my wrists and, and, you know, just throw me uh, onto the bed or the couch or a wall. Things would accidentally happen, or at least he would say it was an accident where I would get hurt. One thing I think that is important is when we often think of domestic violence, we think of somebody just like punching you in the face, right? Like beating the crap out of you directly. I experienced domestic violence and he never did that. He never punched me in the face. And so that is the person he became. Now, back then, when I was 18 years old and a mother of two children struggling to just keep my head above water, I did not actually see all of that as abuse all of the time. If I look at the whole picture today, I can see that there was so much going on. But when I was in it... There were only a few instances that I would have ever considered even like I would have been like, oh, yeah, maybe that's abuse. There was one time where he and I can't remember what actually happened that I said, no, I'm not doing this. You are leaving our home. You're not allowed here. I don't want to be around you. Get out. And he left. And so he left but because we had integrated ourselves into his family and his church so much i had people who came to me and, and explained to me that as a woman who has already disgraced god two times by getting pregnant before marriage who has not lived life the correct way that it would be in my best interest if i honored god by accepting my husband back into my home they used my relationship with the lord to manipulate me and i let them because again
1: I said, I was hungry for love. Right. And that was, and you wanted that life and they were telling you how to have it, how it works, what the rules are. You didn't know, what you know, you didn't know the rules. This was new to you. So, and of course, probably underneath it all, you wanted him to, you know, come back and make it work.
0: Yeah. I think I did because I really wanted that life that I could see, you know, I had that vision. What happened when he came back? We were probably good for a couple days, you know, and then it just got bad again. Probably, you know, I I remember going to counseling with his pastor and I was just trying to hold the world together and was failing at it miserably.
1: Well, because it was impossible. You were in an impossible situation. So he, you know, showed signs of abuse, right? He's hitting things, he's pushing, but he's not, he's not, he's not punching you. He's not beating you in the classic sense. How did he escalate from where he was to harming your daughter?
0: I can tell you for for me, uh, it was like being a you hear about how you how you cook a frog, right mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. and that's usually how it goes, I think. and I also I became accustomed to the love bombing after incidences. I almost became needful of them because without those, i Our relationship was just, it was just hard. It was a hard relationship. The day she died, I had gone to work that day. I worked at a car dealership. I was selling cars. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I was this cute 18 year old selling cars. Yeah. Yeah. I like Um, it. Yeah. But the day she died, uh, I had left our home. My ex husband was still sleeping. My Toddler who had just turned two was still sleeping. And Katie, my daughter who passed away, she was awake, but she was happy and she was cooing and smiling in her crib. She was probably one of the happiest babies you ever did meet. She had this way about her where you could see the smile in her eyes before her lips even moved. I stopped by her uh, crib and I said goodbye to her and I talked to her for a moment and I left. That day, My ex-husband was supposed to go to the doctor because she had had diarrhea for several days and the doctor said that we'll just go ahead and do a stool sample just to ease my nerves, right? Because I was, I've always been one of those moms. We just needed to come by and pick up the kit. And so he was tasked with doing that since he was at home with the kids. Now that day, what's interesting is that he was actually supposed to take the kids to childcare because he was supposed to run errands and look for a job. But for some reason, he chose not to do that. And during that day, I probably called him four times. At least that's what the records say from our interviews with the police. And each time I called him was to say, Hey, are you taking the kids to childcare? Hey, are you going and looking for a job? Hey, make sure you get this done. Hey, you have to get to the doctor by this time before they close. And the last time I called him was about 4 p.m. and he hadn't done anything he was supposed to do that day. And I said, I really want to take care of this today so that we can make sure everything's okay. Please go and pick up this stool sample kit. And on the phone, he told me that the kids were sleeping. And I I said, then wake him up. You, you got to get this done. And he said, well, Katie is acting weird. She's not waking up all the way. She's breathing funny. And I said, what are you still doing in the house? Get to the hospital, go to the hospital. And he said, well, Natalie, my oldest, she's still sleeping. I don't care. Do whatever you have to do. Get to the hospital. So he had our car I had to get a ride to the hospital and the hospital was across the street from our pediatrician's office. I pulled into the emergency room parking lot. We could see my ex-husband pulling out of the pediatrician parking lot and then turning into the emergency room one. And he moved so Slowly, incredibly slowly. And of course I was frantic because he told me something's wrong with my baby. When he comes out of the car and he's getting her out of the back, you know, in her car seat, I ask him, I'm like, Why'd you go over there? Why didn't you just come here? And he said, Oh, I went over there because I thought they could have a look at her and I need to get the stool sample kit. And they said she's probably fine, but we can bring her over here to get her checked out. What actually happened was they told him to get over to the emergency room as soon as possible. And they called ahead to the emergency room and let them know that they should be expecting a baby who looked to be in critical condition. We walked into the emergency room and everything changed in that moment. There was so much movement. There were doctors and nurses and they seemed panicked, which they shouldn't, right? They're the professionals. They were cutting off her clothes and listening to her heart and shining lights in her eyes. And I don't know what's wrong with her. She looked like she was sleeping, but you could hear whimpers coming from the back of her throat, even though her lips weren't moving. And I was standing on the sidelines, just yelling things like she ate bananas for the first time yesterday. She's had diarrhea for 10 days. Anything I could think of to explain what was going on. And I don't know what my ex-husband was doing during this time because I was not concerned with him at that point. After some time, the doctor came out and asked, asked us some questions about that day, who had been in care of her. Just some pretty simple questions and then asked if he could talk to me privately. He let me know that she had bleeding On her brain that her eyes her pupils had hemorrhaged he told me that sometimes this could occur because of an aneurysm and that's a possibility but more often than not it's abuse and at that moment all i heard was aneurysm because i could not fathom a different reality they were going to flight for life her to denver children's hospital and he said we couldn't go with her because social services and the police were on their way and it was just procedure but they needed to interview us. So for several hours, they interviewed us. And I don't remember my ex-husband saying this, but other people do. When he got out of his interviews, I guess he kept saying over and over again, I'm going to go to prison. They think I did this. Maybe he did. And if he did, I can imagine myself going, what are you talking about? It was December 22nd of 2008. And there was an awful snowstorm that day terrible. You couldn't get over any mountain passes. So, after we left the hospital and we had all the interviews, uh we went to the store to buy chains for the tires because it was the only way we were going anywhere. And we went to my house where my sister, my younger sister was with my two-year-old and we packed a bag, but then I don't remember if they told us before or during, but the police needed to come to our house and search our house. And so we had to wait for the police to come and search our house. We couldn't leave until they did that. And so they came and they searched our house, which was a wreck. (laughs) I remember that being so embarrassed that my house was so messy and we were leaving. But before we left, I had to go back in because I wanted to grab Katie's Christmas presents because I was sure we were gonna be spending Christmas with her. I didn't see my two-year-old in this time because she was already in bed for the night. I did open her door and I peeked in on her, but that was the only time I saw her that day. So we drove 11 hours to the hospital. That's how long it took us. It's usually a four-hour drive. It took us 11 hours because of the snowstorm. Overnight, we were in the hospital uh, parking lot. We were trying to find parking when my mom who was in a suburban with me, my ex-husband, my ex-husband's parents, my stepfather, and her. She got a call on her cell phone uh, from my sister and a family friend who had come over to the house to stay overnight with my child and my younger sister. Social services were at my house and they were removing my child. And at this point, I had no idea why. And they told my mom, you will understand after you talk to the doctors. And my mom looked at my ex-husband and said, you motherfucker, you did this. How old was Katie? The baby five months old to the day. And I didn't know what was going on still. I just knew I needed to be with her. That's all the only thing I could think of. So before the car was even done moving, I threw myself outside out of that suburban. I ran as, as fast as I could to that hospital and I found the pediatric ICU and I threw myself into that department and on my heels was my ex-husband. I didn't care about him. I just needed to get to my daughter. And when we got to the room, we were stopped and we were told that we need to talk to the doctor. I could see my daughter. She was on a hospital bed, hooked up to all these machines and there was a tube in her throat and she wasn't pink anymore. She was purple. And the doctor came in and sat with us and my ex-husband put his hand on my leg and gave it a squeeze the moment before the doctor told me that my daughter had no brain activity And her injuries were caused by child abuse. At that moment, I stood up and I don't even remember what I had in my hand or if I grabbed it from somewhere, but I remember the motion. I remember throwing something at him and I remember screaming at him and asking him, how could he? And I remember him saying, I didn't hurt them. And he was removed from the room and I spent the next 12 hours or so next to my daughter's bedside, singing her the same song over and over again, reading her the same book over and over again. It was brown bear, brown bear. And the police came and talked to us. And, you know, I mean, it was just it was my last day with her. So with brain activity, they had done a test at 9 a.m. that morning and and deemed there was no brain activity, but they have to do it twice. So I had to wait 12 hours until 9 p.m. that night for them to do it a second time. And so I sat in the room while they did it and she had no brain activity. So she died. They kept her on life support until the next morning because I had agreed to donate her organs, but she was gone.
1: What did they say? Was it shaken
0: baby? Well, they don't use that term anymore because it's a legal thing. I don't know. Her autopsy report showed blunt force trauma to the head, showed multiple fluctuations of the neck, bruises on her front and back that were the size of and location of fingerprints. My two-year-old, we didn't know this at the time because of all the chaos, but shortly after, very shortly after she was placed in a foster care, they found bruises all over her, her butt and legs. He had beaten her as well on the same day. And she would play out what had happened for the next several months. I I never saw it happen, actually, but her foster mom reported that she would hold a baby doll and she would hit it against the ground and tell it to fucking shut up. Just fucking shut up. Was there a court case against him? Yes, it took. She died in December and then April of 2009, he was arrested a little bit of a long. Yeah, it was stressful. Uh, I did everything I could to help the police. They even wired me at one point and I had to drive with him and have a conversation with him. He just kept going on about how vaccinations can cause brain bleeds and all these studies about shaken baby syndrome. And like he brought all these papers with him and I had to pretend like I still wanted to be with him for this conversation. I had to hold his hand and kiss him. Oof. It was awful, but I mean, anything I had to do, I would do it. I helped them with the investigation. The police assured social services that I was not a suspect at all and not responsible for any abuse and that they were confident that there was no abuse happening before the day in question. Social services did not give my daughter. I I don't think my case was closed for more than a year after my daughter died. So,
1: yeah. How did you go on after that? How did you start to put your life Together after something like that happens? I don't know. You know, a lot of people will meet me and I'll tell
0: them my story and they'll tell me that I'm so resilient and so strong. And I know those are very kind words and I'm so appreciative, but I had no other choice. I had a daughter in foster care. I was alone in the world. My mom at that time was still an addict. My family and community I had been building wanted nothing to do with me. So my ex-husband's family, the church we went to, they wanted nothing to do with me. They were bailing him out of jail. They were paying for his defense. I was the enemy. And so after she died, it was just me alone in a house with my grief the only choice I had was to fight for my daughter. And so that's all I did. I went to psychological evaluations and parenting classes and court mandated grief therapy. And I worked multiple jobs. And actually my sister lived with me because the abuse in my my household came forward because social services was looking at placing my oldest with my mother and stepfather. And so they allowed my sister to come live with me. You have no choice. You just get up every day and you go and you try to find joy. You just, you look for it and you have to. If I were to give anybody going through this kind of loss some advice, it'd be to not forget to look for joy because it still does exist, even though it's hard to see. And I would tell them to not forget, to forgive themselves.
1: How do you do that? How do you forgive? What's it like learning to forgive yourself? It's,
0: a lot harder than forgiving other people mm-hmm. and you're gonna forget to do it sometimes and i think what you have to do is you have to create good in this world and
1: you have to recognize that there was a reason that you're here to create that good When the guilt arrives, does it tell you that there was some way you could have known something impossible? And does it even matter if there was nothing you could have done differently because you wouldn't have known? Does the guilt care if you couldn't have known? No,
0: (laughs) not at all. I didn't know. I couldn't have known. When I went to work that day, I thought my children were safe. I believed with all of my heart that my husband would never, ever, hurt my children. I couldn't fathom it. I had no idea what was in store for us that day. I think the guilt says that there were signs and you were too stupid
1: to see them. The writing was on the wall, but you couldn't read. I also think that there are lots of situations where men are abusive and they don't end up murdering their child, you know, there and with his type of abuse, that is an es, that is an extreme escalation. So often with with learning to forgive yourself, your expectation, your, your condition for self forgiveness is that you could have been a psychic. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so, you know, I wish I had done things differently because I wish I had known information I had had no way of knowing, that's what makes it so hard is letting go of letting go or really embracing the idea that you actually did. You were doing the best you could do. You were trying to keep everybody safe. You were trying to do something different. You were creating safety. You were doing the best you knew how to do, which frankly was incredible incredible given what you grew up with. There are people who give up. There are people who walk away. There are different things that you could have done. You didn't choose the situation and you couldn't easily get out of it uh, without, you know, really harming other people, but you still made decisions about helping others. You still made decisions even in your grief that were to put extra peace and love and kindness into the world and i think that's really was really incredible and you know starting college and you hadn't finished high school at that point is that right
0: uh i got my ged right when i turned 17.
1: i was a pretty good
0: student before i got pregnant so thankfully i was prepared for it i dropped out about halfway through my sophomore year So after my daughter died and I got my other daughter back out of foster care and my sister, I helped her graduate high school and I helped her apply for colleges and she went off to college, which I was like amazing. But my sister went off to college and at that point, there was really nothing keeping me in Delta, Colorado, where we live. And that place just was a painful place to be. It was painful and I wanted to run away from it. So I did. And I ran away, not very far, three hours (laughs) away to Craig, Colorado, where my best friend lived. And she was going to help me kind of get on my feet and restart my life. And I was there and I was looking for a job and I was also trying to get my, you know, get planted. And I walked into this community college. Classes had started a week before it was past. You couldn't, you know, start classes. I wasn't really looking to start classes. I was wondering if they had any jobs or, you know, and I was just trying to get feel for, for things. And I walked in there and I talked to the lady at the front desk and we chatted for a little bit and she said, you should go to college. And I said, Oh no, I can't. I'm high school dropouts. I'm single mom. Like it's not in the cards for somebody like me. And she's like, that's silly. <laughs> yes, it is. And she says, it's, it's really easy. All you have to do is you have to sit down at this computer and you have to fill out this form. And then you're going to fill out this form and then you're going to go home and get this information and come back. Can you do that? Like she was very pushy too. Very pushy. And I was just like, okay. And so I sat at the computer and I filled out the forms and then I went home and I got what she told me to get. And I came back. And the next thing I know, somebody's telling me, well, your first class is tonight at 6 PM. And I went to that first class and I started going to college and I was working and going to college and I thought I was going to fail because, well, I couldn't even finish high school and I didn't fail. Actually, I just kept succeeding and I kept doing well. And then I was student government president and I was a member of the Honor Society and I was giving the commencement speech and I was graduating with honors and a 4.0 and I was applying to four-year programs. And I was doing this all while building a career and taking care of children. I did get married again. I got divorced a second time. I'm really good at this marriage thing. I got to tell you. <laughs> well, in fairness, you, you didn't have the best uh, <laughs> training. <laughs> no. And that relationship was not abusive. It just was not for you. Yeah. It just was not. It did not work out like I anticipated it would. Uh, and I had another daughter and I also got two stepkids in this process. And so I had four kids and I'm going to school and I'm working on a career. I got my first professional job working with at-risk youth at a charter School. And then I got a job as an admissions representative at a college, which was like super cool. And so, and then I kept going to school. I got my bachelor's. I graduated with that. Then, uh, one week after I finished my bachelor's, I started my master's degree. I got promoted at the college uh, into a director position. I started teaching as an adjunct. I just kept building. And, and that's some that's advice I would give anybody. If they're not sure what direction they want to go in or what direction, where their path is going to land them, just always do something that is moving you forward. Yes. Just always do something that's moving you forward. You don't have to know what the destination is going to look like. But as long as you're investing in yourself and you're doing good things, you're going to be able to channel that somewhere. And so that's just what I did. I just kept moving forward. I'm very proud of what I've done. And, and now I'm learning right now. I'm on a journey of of learning still to forgive myself of people do not love me only for what I can do for them. They love me because of me. I can see even with my daughter, my oldest daughter, that we are breaking chains, that we are invested in healing and ending uh, generational trauma.
1: And I'm really excited
0: to see what they do.
1: Yeah. In this world. Yeah. Me too. Me too. And your story is incredible. And I know you didn't choose it, and you probably wouldn't choose it if you know it was handed to you. However, what you've chosen to do with the cards that you were given, the way you have played them, is remarkable. Thank you so so much. What what's your TikTok handle or your social media? Where can people find you?
0: Oh, um, they can find me on TikTok at Meet underscore Desiree. Desiree, spelled like the word desire with an extra e on the end. <laughs> That's the easiest way to tell people. I also have a website, com. I should probably use the other social media platforms, but it's, it's too much right now. <laughs> yeah. 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 Fair. <laughs> so yeah, find me there.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much. I cried.
2: Yep, me as well. I cried in lots of different ways, yeah. right? Like I mean yeah. <laughs> early on hearing her talk about the backpack activity that she did at the Betty Ford clinic and carrying the rocks and just really desperately wanting to get rid of her mom's rocks. I just that one killed me. I just can't imagine and we've had stories of loss in this season, but just the way that this happened and oh, I just as a parent I can't imagine how I would put myself back together. And to to hear kind of the amazing way that she triumphs at the end and what she's able to do is one of the most dramatic sort of story arcs, I feel like, of any that we did this season. And I don't know, I, I left with a lot of appreciation for my situation and appreciation for my family and appreciation for all the things that I often take for granted because they were not guaranteed for her, for sure.
1: I was really struck by Desiree and her siblings heating up water and putting spices in it and pretending it's soup, and just going hungry with all that family around. You know, I hear I hear a lot of these stories, but for whatever reason, the neglect in this story came home with me, and I thought about my kids. And I think one of the things that's interesting, if you're a parent listening to this, you think about it from the perspective of the kids when she, when Desiree's young, what the, the living in that poverty exposing your kids to stepdads and that kind of thing, which is obviously a story that it's so common that it's, I, I don't even know. It's so, it's so ridiculously common. I can't, We could change this, but anyway. So I think about it from the perspective of Desiree's parents, what it's like to be addicted, what it would like to be addicted and have children, which I haven't experienced, and and thinking about like what she and her siblings missed out on, and then I think about it from the perspective of Desiree being a parent and going through the loss of her daughter, having to prove that the home that she wasn't the abuser while losing her daughter to foster care. I mean, you literally lost both your kids in a day. And the domestic violence that she was experiencing, I can understand why she didn't think that it was going to go from punching holes in the walls to shaking and hitting her baby I could see that I could see thinking to yourself especially if you're in a desperate situation trying to get out and you're you're 18 or 19 going okay he's hitting walls he's yelling he's screaming he's throwing things I'm not sure that that in my head would have translated to he is a danger to my children at the level that he was you know so me thinking through like oh I've decided that that domestic violence looks like this and that it's dangerous if it looks like this. I, I saw my own biases.
2: Think about it from her perspective, too. Like, OK, so let's say let's say so what's the only option she has to play? Maybe she goes and reports what's happening with her husband. And we just mentioned if they took it to the police, they took it where I feel like the likelihood is that they say, hmm, I don't, I don't know what you want us to do. And the disbelief that they probably have of a, of a woman of that age, you know, there's all these biases that are working against her. So even if she were to say, okay, I'm going to go and I don't know that her situation improves or that, that she's taken seriously in that situation. So, I mean, I, I have only empathy for her in that situation where it's like, I don't know what she was supposed to do.
1: Well, and also like, so she leaves. Now she's a single mom. She's got this baby. She leaves because he started throwing things and hitting the wall. You know, he's clearly... The beginnings of something, but not clear that this is going to be, you know, and and she doesn't have a lot of options.
2: I feel like in this story, I love in stories like this, where you kind of have these moments where it's just like two moments kind of intersecting. So the fact that she moved to this new town and she, she's just kind of touring the town, like it's small enough that she's literally like, all right, let me go check out the college. See if they have a good job for me. Or <laughs> yeah, totally. And they, they have this pushy registrar is just like, love it. Yeah. Why don't you sign up? And then she's in a class like immediately the kind of trajectory that came after that. Just, uh, and then what she did with that situation right like the fact that she just excelled at that level that it turned into so much more i i love those little like chance encounter kind of moments where two things intersect and you're like this lady didn't know what what the outcome was she's probably she may have some quota she has to reach or whatever but she's just like okay there's this woman she came in i don't know this seems like this might be a good situation for her and gets her going and the way that it completely changed her life
1: you know saying yes to opportunities Saying yes, being open-minded is an incredibly powerful thing, especially when you're building your life again. You know, there were so many things that I have said yes to that panned out in really weird ways, like completely unexpected. But because I said yes, because I showed up, because I was, I don't know, interested, available, it turned into something. I met someone, I had some contact, you know, for people who are rebuilding their lives, getting involved, doing something, going to check things out, just being out in the world, and connecting with people is incredibly powerful. And you know, and I, I say that with like an asterisk, which is like you know, if someone offers you drugs, you know, when I say say <laughs> yes, yeah, you know, like I mean, she
2: I, is saying say yes to anything, say yes to
1: everything, yeah, Whatever. yeah, like you know, obviously you have to have like boundaries. You have, you know, obviously there, it's not a perfect solution. But that being said, I think it's a really powerful thing to say yes when you're trying to rebuild your life and you're trying to move things forward.
2: Yeah, I feel like there's it's kind of this thinking of you know it's much easier to turn a car that's in motion right than one that's just standing still like if you ever if you ever try to turn a steering wheel of a car it's sitting in a parking lot like it's impossible but as soon as it's moving you have the ability to do that And it's sort of like sometimes i feel like those yeses even if they're not the right yeses are still the thing that starts the momentum that Allows you to go where you do want to go. So, yeah, I think just her saying yes to that might have been the turning point of so many other things.
1: Yes. And she is awesome on her TikTok channel. So, if you do the tick a talking, I would definitely go check out her TikTok because she puts out great content on there. And that is how I found her.
2: And, uh, you know, just the, my little plug, you know, I'm cheesy, but it's the holidays right now. I, I hope the episode maybe left you with some of what it left us with and that you just go find somebody that you care about and express your appreciation for them. Just because I think if this show shows you anything is that there's a lot that is unpredictable about life. And there's all kinds of turns that we don't know that are coming. And I think it's really important to soak up the time with the people that really matter to you. That's my wish for you for this week is that you, you find somebody that you can connect with and uh, you know, show them what they mean to you. Ashley, anything. This is uh, our last guest episode of the season. Anything that you want to leave the people with.
1: I know this is probably sounds like a cop out, but I would really like to, I would like to echo what you said about soaking in the time, even when the time is stressful or annoying or any of the things that come along with the holidays that so many of us are so blessed and truly blessed, not like a Instagram hashtag blessed <laughs> and, uh, and that we take it for granted and it's easy to do. And we all do it. I do it. Scott does it. We all do it. When you hear a story like this, it really can push you into that gratitude of, yes, my child is coloring on the wall, but you know I get to spend time with them or whatever. Like, look at the joy in their eyes when they're being creative or whatever. <laughs> all right. With that, there is one more episode of the year. I hope you have enjoyed the interviews this season, and I'll see you at our New Year's Eve party episode. This podcast is sponsored by LionRock.Life. LionRock.Life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.